0: This episode deals with a crime committed against a child. Please exercise self care when choosing to listen. Hawbury Lagoon is a former gravel pit that lies on the outskirts of Wakefield in West Yorkshire. The five acre man made lake is an attractive fishing and sailing destination. In 1965, it was where local schools in the region organised a sailing and boat building club for children and young people. It was a popular activity for teenagers who got to spend time outdoors, learn new skills and make friends. 14-year-old Elsie Frost lived within walking distance of the lagoon on Manahague Road, Lepset, a pleasant suburb of Wakefield, built just after the Second World War. Elsie was a very bright and intelligent girl who enjoyed reading and excelled at Wakefield City Girls High School. Many teachers and pupils expected Elsie to become head girl in the near future. The young teen took her Christian faith seriously and was getting more involved in the local church. She aspired to be a teacher when she grew up. Elsie enjoyed engaging in extracurricular activities organised by the school and local council. She was a relatively proficient sailor and would often go along to the sailing club at Horbury Lagoon to help younger children in the girl guides to learn the basics of the craft. On Saturday, the 9th of October 1965, Elsie had a sailing lesson planned with her instructor, John Blackburn who was a teacher at a local high school. The last time she had gone out on the lake, she had gotten into a little difficulty, as her navigation skills weren't up to scratch. The lesson was going to target that area of need and improve her confidence on the lake. Before heading to the lagoon, she ate lunch with her older sister Anne, who was 18 and had already left home and was married, though she still lived close by. The lesson went well, and according to her instructor John, they brought the boat into moor at 3.55pm, after which Elsie spent a couple of minutes helping to clear up some equipment. She then swung her duffel bag over her shoulder and began the 40-minute walk home. She had asked her father, Arthur, earlier in the day if he could give her a lift home, but he had just finished a night shift and wanted to take an afternoon nap. As she set off in the lagoon, Elsie was wearing a yellow cardigan, printed skirt, and a red anorak. On her feet she sported brand new leather shoes. She had promised her mother that she wouldn't get them muddy, so instead of taking the quickest route home over some fields, she took a path that ran along the Calder and Hebel Canal. Elsie had not been walking long when the path she was following entered a red brick tunnel that ran under a railway line. It was here that Elsie was the victim of a frenzied attack. She was stabbed twice in the head, twice in the back, and once in the hand, indicating that she had attempted to fight back against her attacker. Somehow, Elsie managed to make her way out of the tunnel. To the other side, leaving a trail of blood behind her. She made it to a set of steps, known locally as the ABC steps, because there were 26 of them. They led up the side of the railway embankment to a grass verge. Elsie never made it past the second step. She collapsed and died alone, before anyone could help her. Elsie's seemingly motiveless murder remained a cold case for decades. Although the case was technically open, it was not actively worked on by detectives between 1966 and 2015. As a result of tireless campaigning by Elsie's family, new developments have occurred, and nearly six decades on, some light has been thrown on what happened in the tunnel all those years ago. Out of the darkness, a prime suspect has emerged. Persons Unknown is a true crime podcast dedicated to unsolved murders and disappearances. The podcast is based in Wales, UK, and covers cases from Wales, the rest of the UK and the wider world. New episodes are released every other Monday. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Persons Unknown Podcast. For a list of sources, please see the episode notes on your app. If you enjoy the podcast please give us a review and you can help others get to hear about persons unknown by sharing and recommending on social media Thank you so much for listening Now back to this week's case At 4:15 p.m. on Saturday the 9th of October 1965 local man Thomas Brown was walking with his three and five-year-old children and the family dog, near Horbury Lagoon. From the top of the railway embankment, they began to descend the ABC steps, when Mr. Brown noticed a girl in a red anorak slouched at the bottom. He thought she was keeled over crying, so went down and spoke to her to see if she was okay. When he got closer, he could see her face and knew she was dead. There was blood on her face and head, and a pool of blood was gathering on the bottom step. It wasn't long before two more people came upon the scene. This may have been because of Thomas Brown's calls for help. Lockkeeper Ralph Brewster and John Blackburn, the man who had spent the previous hour or so sailing with Elsie. Soon afterwards, they were followed by a teenage amateur photographer, who was out engaging in his hobby that afternoon. Leaving the others at the scene, Thomas Brown went to fetch the police. The police arrived promptly, and as Elsie was able to be identified straight away by at least one of the gathered bystanders, presumably her sailing teacher John Blackburn, an officer was dispatched to the Frost home to inform her mother Edith and father Arthur of the devastating news. Arthur Frost was woken from his sleep to be told what had happened. The kind and loving father struggled with guilt for much of his life for not giving his daughter a lift home that day. He talked very little about Elsie's death with anyone and internalised his grief. The rest of the family was also completely shocked and traumatised by the news. Elsie's five-year-old brother Colin was sent to stay with relatives for a few weeks. He didn't find out about what happened to Elsie until his first day back at school when a classmate told him that it was his sister who had been stabbed. A post-mortem was carried out and determined that one of the stab wounds to Elsie's back had pierced her heart. She died from shock due to losing so much blood. There was no evidence that Elsie had been sexually assaulted. The murder weapon was thought to be a heavy bowie or dagger type knife, with the blade 12cm long and 2cm wide. Police divers searched the nearby canal and ground searches were carried out of the local area, looking for the weapon. It was difficult terrain, as it was composed largely of marshland, with the grass reaching waist height in places. The location was also used as a tip, and was littered with rubbish and debris. Soldiers with metal detectors from the Royal Engineers stationed at Ripon were brought in to aid the search. They painstakingly covered a one and a half kilometre square surrounding the ABC steps but the murder weapon was never discovered. A leather sheath was found discarded in a nearby garden which police believed was connected to the crime. Within a day or so Two Scotland Yard detectives were sent from London to aid the investigation, including Detective Superintendent Herbert Giver, who was put in charge of the operation to find the killer. One of the first things he did was oversee a reconstruction of the movements of Elsie and other people present at the Horbury Lagoon during the time leading up to the murder. Aerial photographs were used to plot the scenario, ...involving 70 witnesses. A petite 22-year-old dark-haired female police officer... ...Jane Birkby donned a red jacket and played the role of Elsie. Everyone who had been at the lagoon on the Saturday afternoon... ...was asked to take part and they all had to stand where they had been... ...at 4.10pm on that day. This was the time when it was believed Elsie left the sailing club although I have read estimates ranging from 3.50 to 4.10pm. When D.S. Giver gave the signal, the gathered witnesses sprang into life and P.C. Joan Birkby began the walk from the lagoon towards the Frost residence. Everything was as it had been on Saturday, even down to the children on the boats being asked to laugh and wave. P.C. Birkby Past a golf course with people playing just as they had been on Saturday, and continued on the route, which was a well-known lover's lane that ran alongside the canal. The whole operation was timed by Diaz Giver, who walked slowly behind. When P.C. Birkby reached the steps where Elsie died, she waited there until 4.15, when Thomas Brown came by, reenacting his grim discovery of the previous Saturday. For decades it was believed by Elsie's family that a body was found at 4.30pm, but it is now agreed it was 4.15pm. Looking at newspaper reports of the time, many do state 4.15pm. Numerous aspects of Elsie's fatal last journey were examined, and in all, the reconstruction took three hours. It was hoped that it would trigger the memories of people present, and a witness may remember that someone that was there on Saturday wasn't present in the reconstruction. The police made appeals in the press for people they wanted to trace, to aid them with inquiries. One of them was a teenage amateur photographer, who was seen at the murder scene, and had been spotted throughout the afternoon near the train track embankment. He did come forward, and police were able to develop, print and examine the photographs he had taken that day. They said some of the information he was able to share with them was useful. A selection of the photographs included pictures of passing trains, which helped with working out timings. Police concluded that when Elsie's body was discovered by Thomas Brown, was likely only a matter of feet away. It's possible he was hiding in the long grass, watching the aftermath of the murder he had just committed unfold. Police were also looking for a young man, seen riding a black bicycle with a basket, near the lagoon on Saturday afternoon. He was said to be wearing white overalls, of the type worn by a butcher or abattoir worker. A description was given of a young man with dark curly hair. Police believed he may have cut his hair to change his appearance since the murder, and questioned local barbers to see if it jogged any memories. I believe this description is of the same man seen riding the bike. Please were made for a well-dressed man seen driving in an Austin Cambridge car in the area to come forward, as well as a bearded man who was said to have been hitchhiking in a road nearby. None of these men ever came forward and police were never able to trace them. Over the next few months, 1,200 statements were taken and 400 people who were known to be within half a kilometre of the lagoon at the time of the murder were traced and questioned. But police were faced with a conundrum. They could find no motive for the attack and were unsure if Elsie had been specifically targeted or whether it had been random and the teenager had simply been in the wrong place at the wrong time. One possible angle explored by police was whether Elsie had known her attacker and possibly even arranged to meet someone that afternoon on the footpath. This was first speculated after Elsie's father, Arthur, had said she had gone out to the local youth club the evening before, dressed in smart clothes, which he said was unusual. She had also returned home later than normal. It seems, however, that police were grasping at straws and there was no evidence of any secret rendezvous. Elsie's sister Anne was quoted in a Daily Mirror article on the 11th of October 1965 as saying her younger sister had no interest in boys. Three months passed, and in January 1966, the inquest into Elsie's death was opened. It was overseen by coroner Philip Gill, In the present day, inquests take place after legal proceedings are finished and are there to establish certain facts about a death. In the mid-1960s, an inquest took place before a trial and the coroner had powers which enabled them to name suspects. Numerous witnesses were called to give evidence concerning what happened on the 9th of October 1965. One witness... A 33-year-old labourer and former railway firefighter, Ian Bernard Spencer, was ordered to attend. Ian Spencer was married and had one son and lived locally in Thorns Road, 25 a half kilometres from Hawbury Lagoon. He visited the location often and was there on the afternoon in question. Ian Spencer said he had returned to his house and did not leave his home after 3.40pm, but twelve witnesses said they had seen him there after that time. One person put him near the ABC steps a little after 4pm. Another said Ian Spencer had walked past their house near the lagoon at 2 minutes past 4 on Saturday afternoon. The witness said they could be sure because the television programme that started at 4pm had just begun. Ian Spencer denied this and said he had been misidentified and that other witnesses were confusing their timings. He admitted he visited the lagoon a lot and was there earlier on that Saturday. He argued how could the people be sure the time they were remembering was correct. Both his wife and mother-in-law backed up Spencer's claims and provided an alibi. Nevertheless, coroner Philip Gill described the details of the afternoon like a jigsaw and said it was only Spencer's version of events that jarred and did not fit. Ian Spencer owned a collection of knives which included a Gurkha knife which has a large curved blade, a German bayonet plus other bayonets that he said he had lent to a friend. He also owned some throwing knives and a pocket knife. During proceedings he was asked if he owned a dagger-style knife. He said he did not. A colleague of Ian Spencer said he did own one and carried it in a sheath on his belt regularly. Spencer said the witness was mistaken and he only carried a pocket knife. The coroner, Philip Gill, repeatedly called on Spencer to come clean and tell the truth. On each occasion, Ian Spencer replied that he was. Over the course of the inquest, which lasted several days, Ian Spencer gave evidence twice, and stuck to his version of events. The coroner's summing up took a total of two hours ten minutes. His verdict was that Elsie had been murdered, and that Ian Spencer had a case to answer for in respect to that crime. Spencer was subsequently charged with murder, and ordered to stand trial at Leeds Assizes at the nearest possible date. Until that time, he was to be held in custody in Leeds Prison. Spencer remained stoic and stood smartly to attention during the coroner's verdict. When asked, he said he had nothing to say. Before the case went before higher court judges at Leeds Assizes, it had to be heard before a lower court overseen by magistrates. This occurred in February 1966, a month after Spencer was arrested. Three magistrates oversaw the case and analysed the evidence passed on from the inquest findings. They even visited the murder scene to get a clear picture of events. The three magistrates adjudicated over a five-day hearing. Colin Muscroft, the lawyer speaking on behalf of Ian Spencer, told them his client had no opportunity or motive for the murder. There was no evidence that Ian Spencer knew Elsie or had seen her that day on the lagoon. He said there were other people present near the murder scene who had opportunity. He then cast aspersions on the school John Blackburn and dog walker Thomas Brown. To be clear, there is no evidence against these men, The defence lawyer was simply trying to provide ammunition to the magistrates that would clear his client. The magistrates concluded that Ian Spencer had no case to answer for concerning the murder of Elsie Frost. There was no blood found on Mr Spencer's clothes or any forensic evidence. The magistrates found the alibi given by Spencer to be solid. Not only was it corroborated by his mother-in-law and wife, but it was also backed up by a friend of the family. This was good news for the Spencer family, but Ian's ordeal was not over yet. As he had been committed to Leeds Assizes on a coroner's warrant, he still had to appear there and the trial would go ahead. Although the magistrate's decision did not alter this in fact, in practice, it was the nail in the coffin for the prosecution against Ian Spencer. When the trial opened in March 1966 at Leeds Assizes, the opening remarks by the prosecution lawyer were that they had no evidence to offer. The judge, Justice Ashworth, instructed the jury that they could only find the defendant guilty if there was evidence presented, and as a result, it took no time for them to return a verdict of not guilty. The Reading Evening Post reported that later that evening, journalists were invited into the Spencer home for a short interview. Ian Spencer sat on a sofa, holding his wife Marjorie's hand. His mother, mother mother-in-law and other family members surrounded him. He looked pale and gaunt. Ian Spencer told the gathered journalists it felt as though a weight had been lifted from the family. During the ordeal, he had often wondered why this nightmare was happening to him, but said he held no bitterness. Marjorie described the experience as eight weeks of torture. The family had never wavered in their support and were relieved now they could finally put this horrible experience behind them. It's sad that whispers and rumours followed Ian Spencer throughout his life and he struggled to distance himself from the accusations. Police would often come to speak with him when other crimes against young girls occurred, and as a response, he kept incredibly detailed journals of his movements, as he wanted to have evidence of his whereabouts. I'm not sure what originally brought Ian Spencer to the police's attention, but they made up their minds early on that he was their culprit. Following Ian Spencer's not guilty verdict, the investigation into Elsie's murder more or less stopped and was not actively worked for five decades. As we will see, the tunnel vision of the police regarding Ian Spencer meant the real killer slipped through their fingers. If things had been done differently, another life could well have been saved. The Frost family believed in Ian Spencer's innocence and had always doubted he was the killer of Elsie. They now had to try and get on with their lives with the knowledge that Elsie's killer was still out there. The family felt torn apart, and there was no chance of healing without any form of justice taking place. I think it's fair to say they believed Elsie had been forgotten by the police, who seemed resigned to the fact that the case would remain unsolved. When Arthur Frost passed away in 2003, Elsie's siblings... Anne Cleve and Colin Frost decided to start looking into the case themselves and began a long campaign to have their sister's murder looked at again with fresh eyes. They attempted to gain access to the original case notes but they were held at the National Archives and were not to be opened until 2060. The reason given for this was that the police case notes had named suspects other than Ian Spencer in connection with the crime. It was deemed that the identity of these individuals should be protected. As the 50th anniversary of Elsie's murder approached in 2015, Anne and Colin contacted the BBC about their sister's story. They sent details of Elsie's case to Eddie Mayer who was a presenter on Radio 4's PM programme, who in turn contacted the investigative journalist John Manell. Manell began to investigate Elsie's case and talked to family members and original witnesses from 1965. 15-minute segments about the case were included in the Radio 4 programme over several months and were then turned into a 10-part podcast called Who Killed Elsie Frost. The podcast gained exposure for the siblings' campaign and addressed some of the theories concerning what befell Elsie on the afternoon of the 9th of October, 1965. I mentioned before that the route Elsie took that day was a known lover's lane. It was an area used by couples to have sex. Shortly after the murder, a rumour began circulating that on her walk home, Elsie had stumbled upon two men engaged in sexual activity together. In 1965, homosexuality was still illegal in the UK and the rumour stated that Elsie had been murdered to prevent their secret getting out. Building on this theory, the BBC podcast heard from a nurse, a former schoolmate of Elsie, who said she had heard a story third-hand about an incident in the hospital where she worked in Wakefield. A man was admitted to hospital, who was high on drugs, who apparently admitted to murdering Elsie, citing the reason as that she had caught him having sex with another man. On the back of the podcast, West Yorkshire Police decided to re-examine the case and go over the original police notes. The new investigation was passed on to the Major Investigation Review Team, which was composed of 14 cold case specialists, either current detectives or civilians such as former police officers and other crime experts. The investigation was codenamed Operation Plain Lake and was led by Detective Chief Superintendent Nick Wallen of West Yorkshire Police's Homicide and Major Inquiries Team. The team discovered that many of the original documents had been destroyed and there was no DNA or forensic evidence available. It had been revealed on the podcast that all of Elsie's clothes had been returned to the family following the murder. Arthur Frost had destroyed them as he couldn't deal with the pain of having them in the house, reminding him of what had happened to his daughter. The team looked into the story provided by the nurse but concluded it was too unreliable, as it had been passed on by word of mouth, and they could find no proof of its veracity. If Elsie's case had any chance of being solved, it was going to come down to old-fashioned policing. Although most of the West Yorkshire police files on the case had been destroyed, there was hope some information may still be held at Scotland Yard, as the Met Police had been involved in the case. You will remember Detective Superintendent Harold Giver and a colleague travelled to West Yorkshire early on to lead the case. It was here at the Met Police HQ that a written note was found, which proved to have immense importance. It detailed that Scotland Yard had sent the name of a potential suspect to detectives in Yorkshire just four days after Elsie was murdered. At the time, the suspect was on the run, as he was wanted in relation to two sexual assaults that had been carried out against two 16-year-old girls in Scarborough and Doncaster in North Yorkshire. When detectives in 2015 came across the note, they recognised the name of the suspect immediately. The man, who was then in his mid-70s, had been held in secure psychiatric hospitals in Berkshire since 1972, First Broadmoor and more recently Thornford Park Hospital. A judge had ordered that he be detained after the man admitted to the manslaughter of a 14-year-old girl from Onewell in Barnsley on the grounds of diminished responsibility. The girl's name was Shirley Boldy and she had been abducted, raped and stabbed to death in July of that year. This heinous crime saw the killer dubbed the beast of one well. His real name was Peter Pickering. Detectives discovered another note that showed the West Yorkshire Police returned the file on Peter Pickering to Scotland Yard less than two weeks after they received it on the 25th of October 1965. They said they had undertaken extensive inquiries and Pickering could not be found. For days, Plainclothes officers had watched Pickering's mother's house where he was staying to try and apprehend him but he managed to evade them. After many hours of surveillance the police officers realised that the woman they had repeatedly seen coming and going from the house who they believed was his mother was actually Pickering himself in disguise. When they realised this they pursued him which resulted in a high speed car chase. They never caught up with him and Pickering was able to elude capture and escape. Pickering also had the assistance of his mother, who it seemed would do anything to shield her son from being held accountable for his actions. For whatever reason, detectives working the case in West Yorkshire did not think much of the information sent to them from London. There may have been numerous names sent to them to look into, but for whatever reason, they didn't prioritise Pickering never caught up with him so he could be questioned about Elsie's murder. Pickering was eventually picked up by the police on the 31st of December 1965 in connection with the two sexual assaults on the 16-year-old girls, but by that time the investigation into Elsie Frost's murder was concentrating on building a case against Ian Spencer. Peter Pickering wasn't even considered a suspect by this time and was soon forgotten about. He was sentenced to six years in prison for the sexual assaults he had committed in North Yorkshire on the two 16-year-old girls. In 1972, five months after being released from prison, Pickering bundled 14-year-old Shirley Ann Baldy from Barnsley into the back of his van as she walked back to school after her lunch break. Pickering, who was in his early 30s at the time, drove the terrified teenager to Woodland, near the village of Bamber. Here he raped and tortured Shirley, before stabbing her to death with a kitchen knife. Three walkers heard Shirley's screams and witnessed part of the attack from afar. They ran to assist, but Pickering fled in the van, taking Shirley's dead body with him. He later disposed of the body and attempted to get rid of any forensic evidence but was tracked down relatively quickly. He crumpled under police questioning and confessed to the crime. Armed with the knowledge that Pickering's name had come up so early in the original investigation, in 2015, DS Nick Wallen and his team got to work. They began to look more closely into a connection between Pickering and the murder of Elsie. Peter Pickering was a renowned hoarder and they discovered that despite being in a psychiatric unit for the last five decades, he had two storage lockups in Sheffield and Liverpool. They were paid for from his mother's estate. Pickering was a prolific writer and was forever doodling in notebooks and composing letters. It was a mammoth task to sift through the thousands of pieces of paper in the storage units. The police were thorough and found some incriminating items. A letter was found that Pickering had written to his former girlfriend just days before Elsie was murdered. The girlfriend had ended their relationship, and Pickering was very angry, as she had also retracted an alibi concerning his movements at the time the two 16-year-old girls were sexually assaulted. In the letter that was never actually sent, Pickering warned his girlfriend that she should... Quote, Watch this space, and blamed her for the act he was about to commit. He said he would go down in flames, and the process was going to get bloody nasty. Police also found written evidence that Pickering had asked his mother to provide him with an alibi for the time that Elsie was murdered, should the police require him to provide one. She had asked a GP to write a letter to state that her son was ill in bed on Saturday the 9th of October. I believe the letter from the GP was also found, though I can't confirm this. Items of women's underwear was also found in the lockups, though it was impossible to determine who they had belonged to. The team also spoke to staff at Broadmoor Psychiatric Hospital, where Pickering had spent the majority of the last five decades. They said he would often boast that he was talked about in the newspapers, and had reenacted how he had killed Elsie in front of nurses. When DS Nick Wallen first began making inquiries about Pickering at the hospital, Pickering himself phoned the police to speak to officers and provide an alibi. He said he knew he was a suspect in the Elsie Frost case, and claimed he was in France when the murder happened. This proactive attempt to provide an alibi was a huge red flag for Diaz Wallen. In 2016, it was announced in the press that police had arrested a 78-year-old man in connection with Elsie's murder. They did not give the person's name at the time, but it was confirmed later to be Peter Pickering. Over the next couple of years, the police got to work building their case, in the process, they unearthed evidence amongst the letters and written notes in the lockups of the rape of an 18 year old woman carried out by Pickering only a few weeks before the murder of Shirley Boldy in 1972. Police were able to trace this woman in 2016. She had not come forward when the attack had occurred because she feared she would not be believed. It was a harrowing ordeal in which she had been handcuffed and tortured. The unidentified woman described Pickering as a monster. In March 2018, Peter Pickering was found guilty of the woman's rape, but days later, before he could even be sentenced for the crime, he died of a heart attack. Police revealed a short time after his passing that they were close to charging Pickering for Elsie's murder at the time of his death. The information the review team had already uncovered was enough for a new inquest to be held into the death of Elsie Frost. The original inquest was quashed and the findings of coroner Philip Gill thrown out. It was the final act in the clearing of Ian Spencer's name. Ian Spencer passed away relatively recently, but I believe that before he died, police officers were able to visit him and apologise and tell him they believed he was innocent. I hope that brought him some comfort." At the new inquest held at Wakefield Coroner's Court in November 2019, DS Nick Wallen described Peter Pickering as a homicidal maniac. He was personally convinced that Pickering had killed Elsie Frost. He added that when he started the reinvestigation into Elsie's murder in 2015, He was not expecting to find a named living suspect. He was pleased that this had occurred, but sad that Pickering had never stood trial. Summing up, the coroner Kevin McLaughlin said to the court that it was clear Pickering was a danger to young women, but he couldn't proportion blame for Elsie's death. He also said that while Peter Pickering would never stand trial for what he is alleged to have done to Elsie, he at least spent most of his life behind bars. Peter Pickering is also a suspect in the murder of Anne Dunwell on May the 6th 1964. The 13-year-old disappeared after leaving her grandmother's house in Maltby, South Yorkshire to catch a bus to Rotherham, 15 minutes away. She never got on the bus and her naked body was discovered near a dung heap just outside Maltby. She had been raped and strangled. This had been done with Anne's own stockings. Her clothes were found in a nearby reservoir. Six days before Anne's murder, another schoolgirl had been approached by a man in a van, but she had refused to go with him. On the night Anne was killed, a man was seen in the area driving a battered brown van. He was sought, but never tracked down. Witnesses described a man... He drove a similar vehicle, drinking in a pub a week before Anne was killed. He was said to have a slight Scottish accent and was slim of average height with well-green short hair. He smoked a brand of cigarettes called Craven A. He also wore a distinctive ring with a large blue stone. From conversations with locals in the pub, he is believed to have been well-educated. The man said he was single, and gave his name as Pete. In 2002, a forensic examination of Anne's clothes suggested her killer was suffering from gonorrhea. In 2004, police said they had two suspects for Anne's murder, but both were dead. That being said, the location, nature of the attack, and the age of Anne has meant that Peter Pickering is now a suspect in this case. The physical description of the man seen in the pub does not fit the pictures I have seen of Peter Pickering as a younger man. Pickering had thick dark bushy hair and a full beard, but these photos were from the early 1970s rather than the mid-1960s. Peter Pickering, as far as I can tell, did not have a Scottish accent. Obviously the person seen in the pub may or may not have any connection to the crime. For now, Anne Dunway's murder remains unsolved. Colin Frost and his sister Anne Cleave have not found full closure or justice, but their dogged determination has provided some answers. Both are very happy that through the re-examining of their sister's murder, Ian Spencer has unequivocally been cleared of any involvement in the crime. What is evident is the pain they feel due to the consequences of Peter Pickering being overlooked in the original investigation. As a result, at least one 18-year-old woman was subjected to a horrendous sexual assault and Shirley Boldy had her life violently taken from her. DS Nick Wallen has apologised to Colin and Anne for the failings of police efforts in 1965, We can only admire Colin and Anne for never giving up on their sister Elsie. Even though they didn't see the result they longed for, hopefully their example will encourage others who still await justice and answers for their loved ones.